Welcome to Shakespeare's Pants, the podcast that explores the ins and outs of English domestic activity during the life and times of William Shakespeare. My name is Angela and I'm a Shakespearean, which is a strange thing to do with one's life. But in my attempt to be useful for a change, I'm using my otherwise pointless superpower to make history and literature come together for you, my lovely listeners. And so without further ado, here is my podcast, Shakespeare's Pants. Shakespeare's Pants. In this episode, I'm delving into the world of pregnancy and exploring the ways in which people understood getting pregnant, the actual experience of pregnancy itself, and finally, the process and paraphernalia of childbirth. So let's to it with episode 5, Pregnancy and Childbirth. Now, the primary function of sex was to conceive, and so naturally, advice about how to do this was ubiquitous in terms of hand-me-down knowledge as well as household manuals and medical texts. In the previous episode of Shakespeare's Pants, we learnt about church, state and medical attitudes towards sex, what was both moral and appropriate for the young and older bodies. In addition, we learnt that sex was advocated within Protestant marriage for the primary purpose of procreation. Reams of material was written, published, republished and passed down the ages to help women conceive – the most famous and oldest being the Trotula from the 12th century. We'll return to published work shortly, but first we have to understand that domestic medicine was primarily a female territory. This is Amy Belissian who's going to explain more. So most, uh, I mean, the vast majority of treatment would have been dispensed by somebody in your own household or somebody in your community. And there, and there were men involved as well in what some people call domestic medicine. But I would say the vast majority were women. And this network of, of information, of remedies, medicine, advice, and, and then women who, who simply went through their communities dispensing medical knowledge, expertise, caring, and the physical, the hands-on physical work of caring for patients. Women who helped out in the birthing department were known as gossips. Dr Sarah Reid explains more. So the idea of a gossip, it derives from, etymologically, from uh, God's helper, you know, that same way as God's parents. What I like most about the idea of gossip is how reciprocal it was. So, you know, I'd be your gossip and you'd be my gossip. It's all about this female companionship and helping you through the process. Negative connotations of the word gossip derive from this process of women sharing ideas and news amongst themselves. The idea is that in the gossiping, no holds barred, women, female only space, we could talk about anything we wanted to. One of the things you get in the misogynistic satires on marriage is talking about in the gossiping chamber about women bitching about the quality of linen and other people. Or if you find a hole in somebody's childbearing linen, they hold it up and show it off around the room and make fun of them, things like that. But there is definitely this idea that women are talking about men and, and sexual prowess and things like that. And that's exactly where the negative connotations of gossip come from. As well as domestic medicine being about caring and sharing of knowledge within female communities, hand-me-down knowledge of conception ranged from sexual positions through to the temperature in the room. 
So there were certain things that you could do to ensure that a healthy child was conceived. This is historian Leslie Smith. So if you want to have a boy, you need heat. If you keep having a girl, you're getting wet and cold. Women are cold, wet, lacking morality. If they were born under um, Aquarius, they'd be even more feminine. If they were born under a hot sign and they had red hair, they'd be more masculine. Because it's heat. But by the mid-1500s, conception was widely understood to take place only after both parties reached climax. And this is because both men and women were understood to have seed. Female seed was linked to periods, and much anxiety about, and indeed after conception, was centred around periods because menstrual blood was thought to be important to nourish a baby inside the womb. Now this is in large part why older women who took younger husbands were considered selfish and indulgent, because they had either ended or were nearing the end of their courses. They were considered unworthy recipients of a young man's seed. But because menstrual blood left the body once a month, this was considered a categorical no-go for sexy times. This is Dr. Sarah Reed. The best time to conceive was thought to be after a period was finished, so in the days just afterwards. And the idea was that because the womb was nice and clean at that point and it was fresh and ready to receive the conception, um, there was no concept of ovulation at all for, for another um, hundred years or so. Sex during a period was not only was it forbidden in the Bible, also culturally and medically, it was thought that it would cause deformities on the child that was conceived. So it wasn't that you couldn't conceive during a period, it's just that the signs would be there for all to see. And it could be something as simple as your child being born with red hair or with strawberry birthmarks or even to something as dire as being born with leprosy. And John Evelyn, the late century diarist, he writes a letter to his son when he gets married and tells him to not do that because then the, um, the whole world will see that you couldn't control yourself just for a few days every month and it would be there for everybody to see. So these, these ideas are really deeply culturally embedded. As well as having domestic, culturally embedded rules and remedies for getting pregnant, Medical texts, namely midwifery manuals, expounded on medicalised understandings of conception. Swiss physician Jacob Roof published a midwifery handbook in 1554. It didn't make it into an English translation until 1637, but it was known as the expert midwife. And in it, he explains the popular understanding of seed. But after the womb, which is a generative member of the female sex, hath conceived the seed of man, it doth admix and mingle her seed also to it, so that of both the seeds of both sex there may be made one mixture. Pseudo-medical and indeed official medical texts like Ruth's were in abundance throughout the 16th and 17th centuries. One such was a midwifery manual called The Birth of Mankind, translated by Thomas Reynolds from the 1545 version. Sarah Reed mentioned it in episode one. Sarah also tells me that such books were incredibly commonplace. 
We do know that young people were, were looking at these reproduction guides to find out how to do things and, and what went on. So, and they were they were often quite inexpensive, um, low quality versions, you know, and mass production versions going through hundreds of editions. So, like the Birth of Mankind stays in print for a hundred years, and it's fascinating, really, isn't it, to think that a medical textbook, as it puts to be when it comes out in 1540 would still be in print largely unchanged in in the 1630s. Reynolds's groundbreaking translation contained birth figures or illustrations of the birth canal never before published in English texts. But more unusually for the period, Reynolds was explicit about the experience of female arousal. And in women having great and fervent desire to any man, This seed doth issue from this foresaid place, down along to the woman's privy passage, moisturising all that part as it were with a dew. Inevitably, in publishing guidance about how to achieve a female orgasm, along with diagrams of wombs and vaginal passageways, such books became a form of soft pornography, to the point where authors felt obliged to tack on disclaimers to their work. Here's an extract from the preface of Reynolds' translation. Wherefore, considering that there is nothing in this world so necessary nor so good holy or virtuous, but that it may by wickedness be abused, it shall be no great wonder, though this little book also made, written, and set forth for a good purpose, yet by light and lewd persons be used, contrary to godliness, honesty, or the intent of the writer. Therefore, lest that some ill-disposed person should wickedly abuse such medicines as be here declared for a good purpose to some devilish and lewd use. What I mean by the lewd use of them, they that have understanding right soon will perceive. Similarly, Jacob Roof's midwifery book had this in its preface. Some perhaps say it is unfit that such matters as these should be published in a vulgar tongue for young heads to pry into. True, if by other means it might be effected. To conclude, I say only this. My intentions herein are honest and just. But young and raw heads, idle-serving men, profane fiddlers, scoffers, jesters, rogues, avant, pack hence. I neither meant it to you, neither is it fit for you. Notwithstanding the more salacious uses of these books, they proved invaluable for physicians and the enormous network of women and midwives for whom childbirth was a communal and important bonding experience. So let's turn to Sarah for an explanation about who midwives were and what their duties involved. So uh, midwives apprentice trained, so often mother, daughter, and midwives called their apprentices their deputies, and they did a period of three to six years of training, and then they were licensed by the church. So they do the equivalent of the DMB, the background check, and see if if you're a good repute, um, you're a good Christian woman, and 
your testimonials stack up. And if all that's true, then the bishop will license you and you take an oath in church. And it's a hugely long, there's various versions of it, but one published version from mid-century, there's 15 points that you agree to. And they include things like if the child's stillborn, that it's up to the midwife to give it a decent burial. Obviously, it can't go in consecrated ground because it'll be unbaptized, but they must bury it to, in, a, in a suitable place where it can't be dug up by dogs or hogs and things like this. And this is actually mentioned in the, in the oath and that, you know, you won't do any harm and this type of thing. They were very much seen as professionals. So midwives were qualified, if not medically, then at least administratively. And their duties were clearly laid out and commonly understood. Assuming that a woman got pregnant and that she was happy about it, what was the actual experience of pregnancy like? Noted writer and indeed playwright Thomas Decker, in his prose satire The Bachelor's Banquet from 1603, mocked the many cravings that a pregnant woman experienced and lamented the inevitable woes and expenses incumbent upon a husband to cater to her appetites. She can brook no common meats, but longs for strange and rare things, and whether they be to be had or no, yet she must have them. There is no remedy. She must have cherries, though for a pound he pay ten shillings, or green peas cods at four nobles a peck. Yea, he must take a horse and ride into the country to get her green codlings when they are scarcely so big as a Scotch button. In this trouble and vexation of mind and body lives the silly man for six or seven months, all which time his wife does nothing but complain. This characterization of the woman as lazy and demanding was very much a satirical bachelorhood assessment, but humour aside, it does throw some much-needed light on the supportive and nurturing role that men played in the whole process of pregnancy. They were perhaps a little more hands-on in their caregiving than we might somewhat lazily assume. Generally speaking, women were advised to undertake moderate exercise, avoid raw fruits, and take extra care during times of plague. This is Lorna Giltrow Shaw, who at the time of this recording was herself pregnant. They did take into account that there would be pregnant women during these various plague epidemics, so they needed to cater for that. So there was one uh, specific preservative for a woman with child, uh, and I'm quoting here, sorry, so, or as such as to be delicate and tender and cannot away with the taking of medicines. And it essentially recommends toast made with white bread with a little good quality rose vinegar sprinkled on it. But it does state that if, if good vinegar isn't available, then just put a little bit of butter on your toast, which who doesn't want that? But it does also say if you're a vulnerable person or a pregnant lady and if you do have to venture outside you can smell or chew the root of angelica or valerian so these are all kind of really accessible things that a woman could do if you were a woman of status and wealth there might have been a desire to document and celebrate your pregnancy and this gave rise to what has recently been termed pregnancy portraits to explain more about this here's dr tara hamling so the 
pregnancy portraits have been um, recovered really uh, recently. Uh, they were entirely neglected or unrecognised. They were recognised by uh, Karen Hearn, who was then curator at the Tate Museum. And she noticed that some of the women in some of the early portraits in her collection uh, looked pregnant. But some of the examples, the women are very obviously pregnant. And this convinced her that this was a thing in the early modern period. And it seems to have come in in the first decades of the 17th century. There are a limited number of these portraits because uh, in order to have an oil painting in the early modern period, you needed to be very wealthy. So this is something you know that middling sorts would not be able to commission. But I think they do tell us quite a lot about changing attitudes towards pregnancy. On the one hand, it's something to commemorate and mark with a significant commission of the portrait. The, the woman that's pregnant is being celebrated. Her sexuality is being celebrated. Her ability to conceive is being celebrated, which is quite a move away from the Catholic emphasis on virginity. Obviously, the Virgin Mary was pregnant, but you know it, it was a very particular situation. So these women are being celebrated for being kind of actively uh, sexual and, uh, and good at their jobs, ultimately. The experience of being pregnant is best documented by Shakespeare in The Winter's Tale, where the first half of the play is dominated by the Queen Hermione's pregnancy. Everything about her is celebrated and cherished until she is thrown into prison for alleged infidelity, whilst still pregnant. Once a woman was ready to give birth, she was confined to a room for her own safety. There were things that she might do to ease her discomfort, depending on her sort and the resources to which she had access, one of which was a medicinal bath. For a woman expected to give birth, she was advising some midwifery guys to take a bath, but it was a herbal bath with specific herbs added to it that would make her body more pliant and, and make the birth easier. So, you know, rather than just being because she'd feel nice after she's had a bath. Safely confined and ready to give birth, a woman would rely on her network of gossips to step in for support. Gossiping is quite a physical thing to do. It must have been really exhausting because you would hold the woman up, you'd be mopping her brow, you'd be giving her the, the any food and drink that the midwife said she could have. And it was a really active role. Actually giving birth was obviously not risk-free, but the process itself was fairly ritualised. So people always gave birth upright unless they were ill. Upright means either in a chair, a special birth chair, which is very much like a closed stool in that it's a chair with a hole cut out of it. But it, instead of being a circle, it was a horseshoe. And the midwife would kneel in front of you. And the chairs were about 10 to 13 inches off the ground so that the woman could brace when the contractions came. And the midwife sitting in front and the gossip stood behind you, supporting you, holding your arms. And if you didn't have access to a birth chair, you would sit on the edge of your bed, most likely, with your gossip sitting behind you. So you were sort of sitting between her legs and using her as a backrest, which is a much better position to give birth in than laying flat on your back. That, that was the way women gave birth back in ancient times. It, it's in the Bible. The, there's evidence from ancient Egypt about special birth stones that have been set up in pretty much the configuration of a birth chair. So it does seem to be that, you know, physiologically throughout the ages, that is the way that women always gave birth. Once a baby was born, the mother was still expected to remain in confinement. And this is exactly what doesn't happen, much to everyone's horror, in The Winter's Tale. After Hermione gives birth to a baby girl in prison, she is immediately hauled into a courtroom and charged with treason. 
She laments that, amongst other injustices, she is denied her childbed privilege. My third comfort, starred most unluckily, is from my breast. The innocent milk in its most innocent mouth hailed out to murder. Myself on every post proclaimed a strumpet. With immodest hatred, the childbed privilege denied which longs to women of all fashion. But one interesting thing um, in the Winter's Tale is where Shakespeare talks about the woman's month um, and the so the, the period after birth, which was highly ritualised. So you know you were expected to stay in bed for a month after giving birth, but not not laying there. There was a routine to it. So you, you would lay flat for the first couple of days and then you were allowed to sit up the up sitting after a few days uh, if you were well enough. And then, you know, after a bit more, you could potter around your chamber and get to the stage by the, towards the end of the month where you're you're going around the house doing a bit bits and pieces of light housework and things like that. Um, so it was a very much a staged recovery. There are lots of stories about gentlewoman, uh, gentry laying in for six weeks or, or longer, but working women, so laundresses being back at their trade within three weeks because they couldn't afford to take a month off because it's not just you taking the month off because women have, you know, working class women have always worked, but it means your husband, because you would be working probably from home in the same trade together. And he would have to take a lot of time off or not be as productive because he'd be binding the children while you were laying in. Uh, and so there'd be an awful lot of pressure on, on lower ranking women to get up a bit sooner and be back at work. And so there are case notes of, of women being back, at, certainly of laundresses being back at their trade within three weeks of giving birth. Earlier on, Sarah mentioned how gossips were sometimes mocked for comparing childbed linen in the birthing chamber. To explain more about what childbed linen was, here is Dr. Hannah Lilly. Childbed linen is a collection of clothing and cloths which was used during and just after labour. Childbirth demanded a lot of cloths and clothing for both the baby and the mother. As it does today, new mothers need a lot of new clothes. And these items were often gifted to pregnant women or they were left to women by their female relatives and wills or borrowed by from friends and family as well because buying new cloths for every child would have been out for financial reach of many women within 16th century society particularly those of middling status so materially childbed linens would have to be quite resilient because they would be reused again and again by mothers who might have a lot of children um, and they could also be passed on across generations until they wore out. The ability to commission, bequeath and reuse such linen was part of a wider attempt to savour and pass on narratives from mother to daughter or daughter-in-law, to take some ownership of the materials one owned and cherished as a woman. This is Tara again. What these women were worried about was that the high infant and, uh, and indeed mortality rate for childbirth. So there was always a sense when you're pregnant of whether or not you and your child would survive. Women, while they were pregnant, would write a series of guidance notes to their unborn child for how they would like them to be raised. And sometimes they're addressed directly at the child 
sometimes they're addressed at uh, the child and at the husband as to how the mother would like the child raised. Some of these women's uh, legacies went on to get published because they didn't survive. So it gives a voice to these women who didn't survive childbirth but wanted to be a mother. And I think that they're incredibly moving documents. I think investment in the event of childbirth is a really interesting question because it's difficult to tell from documents like inventories and wills just exactly the nature of items sometimes. They don't go into enough detail. Obviously, that knowledge would have been obvious to them. But what we know about preparations for childbirth would involve the sort of closure of the the chamber to to close off drafts and keep out miasmas. Um, And that would have involved hangings um, around the chamber. So it's possible that some of these textiles were actually again among the wealthier sorts were commissioned specifically for that event and then reused and obviously the hope would be that you would go on to have several children and, and then again perhaps become heirlooms that could be passed on to your children and then their children so that kind of investment at the point of childbirth could be seen as very long term I think there's an example in the Shakespeare birthplace trust collection of some painted cloths that are all about a marriage a biblical marriage so that would seem to me to be obviously linked either to marriage or to, to childbirth. So these sorts of items are usually either commissioned or acquired in relation to a particular event. But the idea is to stretch out that event for as long as possible. Early modern ideas of the life cycle were sort of looped. They, there was no sense of beginning, middle, end. It was all kind of continuous. So, you know, birth and, and marriage and death are all kind of conflated, partly because it often involved Uh, marriage would lead to childbirth that would lead to death so that could all happen very closely together but in an ideal situation where those those rituals are uh, those events are actually uh, marked by a long passage of time there's still those connections between them which are expressed through material culture and it comes back to that idea of always thinking about your mortality your life cycle in relation to your afterlife the fact that this is just a temporary state Whether or not biblical imagery on hanging cloths around the birthing stool were helpful to a woman in labour might be open to speculation. But the ritualisation of birth, I think, certainly reminds us that our female ancestors were heavily reliant on one another, as well as on each other's advice and experiences, in addition to the medicalised narratives around conception, the experience of pregnancy and childbirth itself. So remember to stay temperate, eat lots of buttered toast, and definitely assemble your womenfolk for wisdom in any crisis. That's the end of this episode of Shakespeare's Pants. Join me next time as I navigate the realms of hair and beauty in early modern England. In this episode, you heard from Dr. Sarah Reed, Amy Belissian, Leslie Smith, Lorna Giltrow-Shaw, Dr. Hannah Lilly, Dr. Tara Hamling and me, Dr. Angela Chohan. You also heard the voices of Richard Bunn, Tim Atkinson and Sarah Horner. Thanks ever so for listening. Adieu. Shakespeare's Pants